Hey, welcome everybody to the Backyard Professor special live Friday night session. Hey, Joe, welcome. Alisa, how you doing? Oh, good. The signal went up. Dean Schwank. Oh, Captain, my Captain. Oh, Dean, my Dean. <laughs> hey, welcome. I know it's Friday night and everybody's supposed to be out on dates, but uh, I really do want to focus, keep working on my Freemason information with uh, Mormonism on Sundays. And so I have a special particular thing I want to do tonight that is just too good to lose. And so I'm going to do a book review. And I'm going to review Eric Metaxas is atheism dead, wherein he contends it most certainly is. Somewhat. <laughs> He's definitely arguing against atheists. And what I want to do is give you my first impressions of reading this book uh, in a star rating. You know how they rate books from one to 10, right? 10 being super magnificent and one being I wasted my money, right? <laughs> this is not a one. Eric is an excellent writer. I liked the book. It was really fun to read. So I'm going to give it a seven which means that I liked it very much, and I do recommend it. Now, I am one of those who likes to read uh, within my time constraints uh, every point of view as I can on both sides of an aisle of an argument, right? And so... I have multitudinous atheist books that when I felt like I jumped off into the atheist deep end, and I did a beautiful swan dive, magnifico. It was a perfect swan dive. I was given a 10 on it, but then I resurfaced, right? <laughs> uh, so I consider myself as an agnostic seeker with the determination to come to a better understanding of all sides of this issue, explore various evidences, explore different interpretations of various evidences, and try to figure out who has the better point of view. And I am discovering that you never really get the full analysis, the full interpretation, or the full evidence from any one single book. Nor do you get it in the first 11 weeks of studying. Because as time goes on, our knowledge increases. In conjunction with the increasing, our knowledge can also shift. And so we have to reassess everything again. 
That's how it works. What we thought we knew in the 1960s certainly has been really changed, added to, or taken away in so many different areas. How many disciplines do we study? Billions, right? Lots of subjects to research and study. From 1960 to 2020, we really have had a dramatic uh, and I'll expand, well, expansion's a decent word, but we have had change. I mean, that's ubiquitous, right? Some things we thought we knew in the 1960s, we are finding that up to now in the 2020s, those have changed. So our basis of accepting what was known in 1960 has changed and our conclusions based on our incomplete basis from the 1960s have changed and things are morphing in really interesting directions. That is my basic overview of this book by Metaxas. Fun book. Good to read. Hey, Elisa. Yeah, it's too hot to be outside. It really is. I get that. That's true. So while everyone's out dating, we can do a live session, and then they can all watch the video afterward. I'm sorry I'm making this on a Friday night. I don't know if Friday night is better or Saturday mornings. I'm not too sure. Uh, I have done a special on a Thursday night, but I was too tired last night because it was too hot. And so tonight I decided to try it. This is Salem Books, Eric Metaxas, and it's a 2021. So it's relatively new. Now, the three areas that I think Eric focused on that was truly delightful for me, it held my attention. Two of those areas ended up being more positive than negative. And one of those areas was, quite frankly, quite negative in reaction from my perspective. So two out of three ain't bad. Right. And that's why I give it seven stars. So, what Eric is doing in the first section of his book, now he has written the book before this that really apparently has sold extremely well. I don't know anything about this author, uh, I, I have never heard of him before. There's a new little bookstore in town. I popped my head in just to say hi, browsed around, and sure enough, I found this book and I said, you know, that's a subject that I don't mind studying. So I purchased the book. And one, the, the cover is excellent. It's crisp. It's clean. It's clear. It's bold. You can read it 
right now. Same with the end. So that was nice. And the Earl Boros, he described somewhat of why that is part of the symbolism of the book, of the cover. And I thought, okay, that, that's kind of cool. That's kind of fun. Symbolism has always been a special love for me because of my artistic bent. So I thought that was cool. Eric Metaxas. I'm going to call him Metaxas because I don't know him. Uh, I would like to talk to him. He's a relatively young guy. He's a very handsome guy. He's got a great look on his face, and I know why he's got that look on his face. Somewhat impish, sort of challenging, sort of uh, excited, exuberant, confident. I like, and his book is, his book does come across as a really good conf confident book. Hey, Peter Higgs, welcome. James Conger, welcome. I'm just, you can see it from the front. I'm just starting to review this book. I'm doing my first return of the Shirt Tail Reviews, the Shirt Tail Book Reviews, and I'm reviewing this book, Is Atheism Dead? by Eric Metaxas. Two areas I find good, one I find bad. I'm going to focus more on the bad tonight. I really hope that does not distort this book. However, I am not trying to ad hominem him in any manner. I just have some suggestions that I believe could improve his book or hopefully help him write a better book next time. I would even be willing to help him. I would co-author a book with this gentleman if, if he would like some help in this particular section that I'm going to strongly criticize uh, with the intent of help, not mockery or hindering. So I've buffaloed my way enough. Hey, looks like there's getting to be a little bit of a crowd. Welcome, everybody. The first section that Metaxas deals with is the cosmos, the universe, and deity, and the theme that he wrote a previous book on is the fine-tuning argument. And there are so many parameters that appear to be fine-tuned for life that it no longer looks like it's just an accident randomly going through the cosmos of trillions of light years of size. We are alive, and that is a unique and special gift. This is basically his approach. What made this so fun to read for me is he has a most interesting point that I had not considered before. Um, more, more or less, uh, uh oh, I'm going to pull a backyard professor on you. I apologize. Hang on. I'm going to go grab a book. Hold on. I've got another, I've got the fine tuning argument from critics against the fine-tuning argument. And I think 
this is really fun to see the various ways that they have argued about the fine-tuning. Oh, and wouldn't you know it, I'm not going to be able to find it. Okay, that's enough noise. Okay, sorry. Sorry, that's my backyard professor thing where I have to go find another book or two. I apologize. Now, the fine-tuning argument is one of the more interesting parts because the atheists, the critics, I hesitate to call the atheist critics, the disagreeers, although they really do criticize the fine-tuning argument, one of the better approaches to the argument against the fine-tuning was Vic Stanger. And I'm a, I'm a big fan of Vic Stanger's books. God and the Folly of Faith was one of the first ones of his I read, and he's kind of like one of the fifth horsemen <laughs> of the New Atheism, right? This was quite a revealing book for me at the time when I read it quite a few years back. I haven't read it for a while, so I will admit that. And then, and I lost the book cover. I don't know where the book cover is, but this is Vic Stanger's other book, God and the Multiverse. And this was kind of a fun one. He, It might be in this God and the Folly of Faith. Anyway, Stanger specifically focuses on the fine-tuning argument as a negative for creationists, right? And the creationists love the fine-tuning argument because of the biblical scripture, behold, the heavens declare the glory of God, right? Stuff like that. In the Mormon parlance, in the Pearl of Great Price, in the book of Moses, I, I can't remember which chapter, but it talks about the all things testify of me, and it's Jesus talking to Moses, etc. Right? So, what I liked about Metaxas's approach to this issue, hey, Dean Swank, what are you saying? I hold the frightened notion that BYP has read all those books on the back drop shelves. Yes. Uh, well, more or less. Yeah, I have. Uh, I, I have read the majority of my library for sure. Uh, and it only took me one week because I've read every last page. That is every last page. <laughs> I'll drink to that. Okay, back to my review. What I liked about Metaxas's approach is he describes the evolution of the fine-tuning argument in a really beautiful way. And he brings forward many, many, many points about fine-tuning that have appeared through new scientific research 
which had no intention of discovering more fine-tuning points. And I thought, oh, I have never quite thought of it being done that way. Fine-tuning, when it caught the atheist's attention, if I'm understanding what Metaxas himself said, I have not researched this specific angle. I'm kind of doing a generality, just a, an overall first impression of his book, which I rather liked. I love how he uses words. He's a very good author. Through the years, they began the points in favor of fine-tuning or otherwise called the anthropic principle. Uh, it did not have a lot uh, going for it. It was almost an accidental discovery. And through the years, as we've, you know, refined our telescopes and refined our microscopes, and as we've continued searching the skies and searching the incredible cells that we are made of, as we've looked further and broader and deeper into plant and animal life, as we've come to study and get a greater knowledge of how the sun interacts with the earth, with the plants, with the oceans. And then, of course, you have the moon, and you've got the solar system, and you have the comets, and you have the fact that the universe is expanding expanding. You have the discovery and the fact of the Big Bang, and you have the fact of evolution and how through time, according to Metaxas's view, and I thought this is worthy, the buildup of number of really cool little coincidences has gotten to the point to where it's a landslide of ideas. It's not just a couple or a few or a handful of ideas that have remained stagnant from the 1960s. And as we have enveloped ourselves further and further and further in the process using the scientific method for understanding as much of the absolute, total, almost infinite intricacies of the ultra, ultra, ultra tiny with the utterly magnificent, gigantic, huge, the coincidences Keep on growing. Now, is this proof? No, of course not. He's not dealing with proof. He doesn't give a flip about proof. He is simply saying, as we further move along through time, we are finding greater propensity 
for further information showing that much more across the spectrum, whether it's big or small, is conforming to this fine-tuning theme, or else it's absolutely a wildly improbable coincidence. Now, the interesting thing is what he described about, I loved his part about water, the really unique facts of water. It was just delightful reading. Uh, I really enjoyed the ideas of the calibration within the complexities of the cell and its thousands of different parts. He does not use Michael Behe's approach. He's not going that direction. The people he quotes, now again, I'm doing a general overview. Metaxas has convinced me that over the course of the next five years, I, for the first time in my life, actually myself, I am going to look into this fine-tuning. I think it's a subject that is really more interesting than the atheists have led us to believe. And that's what really surprised me about Metaxas's book. I said, okay, you have at least shown me that number one, the subject is worth pursuing a little bit more. And number two, uh, I would be willing to do so. And I want to. So the desire to look into this for myself, rather than just accept what Metaxas has said, now, and this brings up another one of those little negatives that uh, just kind of irks me. It is not critical for or against his book. This is more having to do with my personal style, my personal uh, methodology, the way I personally enjoy doing a research paper and the types uh, of material that I like to study and read is I really do like to have the sources that the author is using. In footnotes, I, I'm personally, I don't give a flip how the author has done the footnotes. You can put it at the bottom of the page. That's fine. You can put them all in the end of the book. That's fine. But give me the sources and give me the bibliography because I want to look for myself and then I want to see what other sources, the authors that Metaxas likes what type of scholars were these that he is using? Stuff like that. I like to check into the background of various authors, see how many books they've written, for instance. See if they really are a valid scientist or if that is Metaxas saying so. Stuff like that. I want to double check stuff like that. So part of the, the defect in this book, he wrote it really well and he's uh, seems to me like he's attempting to make it read more readable, right? Uh, he wants it to go smoothly. And, and I love that about it. I appreciate that in Metaxas's effort. I do. I'll credit him for that. Uh, 
This particular subject, however, in my opinion, needs uh, to, to be the demeanor of the subject indicates that it should be a research project or, or, or a not a reference book, but you really, in my opinion, you really do need to put the references in there. Yeah, so so that the rest of us can check into it. Now, I'm not saying that he's wrong. I'm not saying he's right. I'm not saying he's a schmuck for not doing it that way. Again, that's more of my personal taste. But for me, that's that's a minor defect in the overall approach in the book. I would hope someday, simply because he is dealing with the scientific subject and it's a Lulu, and several of the fine-tuning arguments that he talked about are really cool. But I don't know. There's some of them that I've never even heard of before. See, in reading Stenger uh, and some of the other, uh, the cosmologists, the scientists in physics and astronomy and astrophysics and all that, I've got a few dozen up over there. Uh, in studying them, the amount the kinds of the fine-tuning implements are really cool. And they're broad-based. The spectrum has grown, not only in width, but depth. And so this is a subject that, thank you, Eric Metaxas, I actually do have a desire to pursue. In that instance, his book is a good book for that reason. I like that. He built the fire up in me to say, you know, for the next five years, I'm going to at least put this on my radar and I'm going to kind of keep track when I browse through Amazon books or when I'm in a bookstore, I am going to start going over to the science sections more and start looking up the fine tuning books and see what new materials have come out. Both sides of the aisle, pro and con, right? because you want to get all sides. I do anyway, right? And so, bingo, that's a that's a gold star on that lovely forehead of yours, Eric Metaxas. I'll drink to that. Great stuff. Now, now for the negative. And, and it comes right after his section. Uh, I think he has like six or seven chapters uh, dealing with various different cosmological fine-tuning aspects, earth fine-tuning aspects, the ultra-big fine-tuning stuff, the ultra-small fine-tuning stuff, the organic and the inorganic stuff, how chemistry functions not only on earth but in the cosmos, uh, so, you know, the evolution of stars, so on and so forth. Uh, probably about the first third of his book deals with that. And I rather enjoyed that. Now, let me just be perfectly blunt. Again, I do not have any desire at all to ad hominem. I'm not attacking Metaxas as a person. This is more in way in, in the second part. And he probably, uh, it wasn't as long. He probably had uh, uh, four or five chapters on the, the subject of the Bible, the Old Testament he had a couple of chapters and the New Testament, he had a couple of chapters. And then he moved on to a, 
a different subject. It is this middle part. Now, I'm somewhat under the impression uh, he's welcome to contact me and let me know if I'm wrong or not, but I'm under the impression that Metaxas meant this to be, uh, you know, more or less the heart of his contextual apparatus for getting us to recognize that atheism isn't as strong as the new atheists have built it up to be. Okay, that, that's the impression I've received from that. Now I'm gonna put the I'm gonna I'm gonna just put this out there and then I will explain why. I believe Metaxas should have simply eliminated this stuff about the Bible, about archaeology and and the theology, the the doctrine, uh the history a little bit and stuff like that. I think his book would have been a better book had he just not gone with the Bible stuff. And there are a couple of reasons that in the spirit of uh, a fellow researcher as a fellow, I, I don't dare call myself scholar because I'm really not a scholar, but, but I am a, uh, I, I'm somewhat well-read, particularly in this subject, because as an apologist, you know, I wanted to know about the Bible. And now as a post-apologetics uh, life that I have, uh, I really do still want to keep up with the uh, the developments, the concurrence, the movements, the successes and the failures of various angles, aspects, and contextualizations of biblical materials, right? How is the Bible being viewed today? Well, I mean, by Jews, uh, versus by Christians versus by the rest of the world, because that has been actually changing. Interestingly enough, it really has. So, uh, I think he would have served his audience better had he not ever gone here. Now that is my first suggestion. My second suggestion, my second idea, and I mean no offense, but I, I'm afraid that suggestion would probably gall him a little bit because he did do a little bit of work in this. Unfortunately, he left no references hardly, not in footnotes or anything. He did, now he does mention the authors and their books. So I think with a little bit of extra footwork, I can find who he's quoting, right? See, that's not not what you want your reader to have, though. You as an author, you need to do all the footwork. Your audience should just be able to say, oh, that book, look it up on Amazon, bam, and order the book. Uh, as an author, you need to make the, the extra uh, researchability of your claims super duper easy. And Metaxas, he does indicate who he's using though. So I'm not faulting him. And yet I am because it's not as easy as it could be, but I still am interested enough to go ahead and do that research. Because one, he writes wonderfully. He's a good, he's a good author. Here is his defect. Oh, the, the other angle that I was going to suggest for Mr. Metaxas is simply this. When you upgrade your book, for Pete's sake, dude, contact me. I can help you. <laughs> no, no, on a serious note. 
if you choose to upgrade your book or or uh, if you move on to another uh, book entirely, it's all good. But if you bring in uh, if you bring in this biblical angle, my suggestion sincerely is that you utilize the most current biblical scholarship. And you really do, in my opinion, you need to utilize the best of the biblical scholars and archaeologists. Yeah. Um, I personally don't feel that you did that uh, because I've been reading them and, and they really are top notch. They are the upper crust. They are the top tier and you never even look their direction and they are all available. So my impression of Metaxas at this point is he is trying to more or less, and I'm not trying to insult him, but he's more or less, his his target audience, of course, I mean, the title of his book is Atheism Dead, tells you that he's targeting the Christians, right? Well, or the Jews or the Mormons, but those who believe, yeah, the Bible-believing people. That is his target audience, right? Nothing wrong with that. You always have to have a target audience. However, in the process now, um, the utilization of... The, now, he specifically focuses on the biblical archaeology, which is what caused me to buy the book, because I did browse in, in the... Uh, the table of contents in the front. And I saw, oh, he's going to go to, he's talking about fine-tuning and fine-tuning. Oh, he is going to utilize biblical archaeology. And I noticed that he also utilized biblical archaeology in both texts in the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament. I said, okay. So I popped it open to that part of the book. I only had a couple of minutes to be in the bookstore. And I began to just basically uh, speed look, speed read through a little bit, just to kind of get a gist, get the titles of his sections to see where he was going. And I said, okay, I'll buy the book. When I read it, here is my suggestion. Here is what I noticed. And most especially, quite frankly, egregiously, Mr. Metaxas, is you are truly using outdated biblical archaeological contexts and knowledge and archaeology and philosophy. Uh, you're in the 1960s, well, the 1930s to approximately the 1970s. With the examples that you demonstrated on how archaeology demonstrates the historical reliability and the truth of the Bible, none of the samples Eric Metaxas used does that. Not one of them. Kathleen Kenyon's 
archaeological work on Jericho has not been refuted with the discovery of the walls of Jericho falling in like Metaxas claims. Now, my big beef here is that is the one sample you use, Mr. Metaxas, that I saw no reference to, and that is extraordinary claim you need to seriously document that one. You can't just say, oh, by the way, we actually have now discovered how the story in the Old Testament on Joshua is actually history and true because now we found the real evidence. You can't just say that without references. That is the one part of the book that just irked me. Because, man, that claim needs backup. You must document that stuff. The other stuff that you've used, we basically understand that uh, William F. Albright and the Albright School and some of those and uh, some of the earlier archaeologists, they went through that, uh, King David being discovered and all that. But you stop short on the timeline, right? And the reason I say that is because Mr. Metaxas is still producing uh, the philosophy that there is a biblical archaeology. Now, actual biblical archaeologists no longer think that. And, and apparently Metaxas is not aware of that. That is why I say you stopped too early in the philosophical and historical understanding. There is not a biblical archaeology as such. There is an ancient Near Eastern archaeology, etc. But the old days of archaeology have passed us by, and you sincerely seriously need to become aware not only of the fundamental paradigm, and this is an entire paradigm shift, and it's a big one, away from the concept of biblical archaeology. No. No, that is the older view. And in order to keep your credibility, now you're arguing with modern scientific uh, discoveries on the fine-tuning. You bring most of that stuff right up to date, right up to today in our day. Why don't you do that with the biblical archaeology? I have suspicions why. And, and it doesn't make you look very good. That's why I'm suggesting you either leave it out or you come up to date. Now, the downside of coming up to date to today is this: these are not atheists that are doing the biblical archaeology. They're still, well, the Jews have gotten involved also. The Jewish and Christian scholars, archaeologists, are not uh, the kind of Christians that Metaxas is writing to. 
but there is serious arguments back and forth about the very existence of ancient Israel. And you need to let your audience aware of this ongoing 35 to 40 year argument. I mean, this is huge. Through the vast majority of my life, this new paradigm and the arguments of how do we handle the archaeological material remains, how do we jive that with the textual remains that we have left? That you haven't done. And that is the defect in the biblical stuff, right? First and foremost, I mean sincerely as a minimum. If you have to go to this subject, number one, you want the absolute best. And number two, you want the absolute most recent. And I mean just within since yesterday, if it's at all possible. So I'm a little bit guilty here of that also, because I don't have it from just yesterday, but I do have a text that there is no way, since you're the one, Mr. Metaxas, who brought up the biblical archaeology, you have no choice for credibility's sake. than to make sure you understand this man at a minimum. William G. Dever is considered. Now, of course, he's, he's ambitious. He's energetic. He does argue and fight for his points. So he is energetic. Some people don't like his... Uh, argumentative views, but he is truly world-class archaeologist. Anybody who is involved with biblical archaeology knows this man and what he stands for. Okay? William Jever, this is his most recent. It's encyclopedic. It's almost 800 pages. It's absolutely essential. And in line with that, I'm going to throw in Dever's other book, Who Were the Early Israelites? And where did they come from? You simply must avail yourself of these materials because this is direct dirt archaeology as it deals with how the Bible portrays ancient Israel and it is not the church interpretation, the Christian church interpretation. I, I don't give a flip if you choose Catholic, Baptist, Lutheran, Mormon. I don't care which denomination. The church interpretation of the Old Testament is not in conjunction with the archaeology. And all of the biblical archaeologists have come to this point, more or less. William Dever has spearheaded this. 
he is the main man to go to. And this is the other book, What Did the Biblical Writers Know and When Did They Know It? At a minimum, oh, and then, and then again, this one, Did God Have a Wife? The Folk Religion in Ancient Israel by William Dever. At a minimum, that has to be brought into your book. Or just quit talking about the Bible archaeology as such. That would be my personal suggestion. Now, in conjunction, and I know it's, uh, I know it's, I mean, this subject is so jai-flippingantically huge mungus that you can't possibly exhaust it, right? I mean, there's tens of thousands of texts written, <laughs> let alone the millions of biblical journals and articles on some specific aspect of biblical archaeology. It's, it's literally inexhaustible, right? But you must make an attempt to at least get the cream of the crop into your next book, or you're not going to have any credibility with it at all. And you're talking to the atheists, so you better be on top of your game. In this particular book, Is Atheism Dead? When it came to the Bible, you weren't at the top of your game. That's my criticism. Not in any way meaning to denigrate the book, just as a hope that perhaps in the future you can correct that uh, mistake. P.R.S. Murray, a century of biblical archaeology. This gives us a bird's eye view. Now, it's a, I believe it's a uh, uh, 1993, no, 1991 book. So, see, this is somewhat dated. It's 20 years old, uh, 30 years old. But his overview of biblical archaeology and how it has changed beginning in the 1600s and coming all the way up to the 1990s, this is a fantastic book to show how the biblical archaeologists used to think about biblical archaeology and what caused them to shift their philosophical approach, as well as what helped them increase their knowledge and what helped them decrease their impressions of what the Bible was supposed to mean. It has shaped the interpretation of the Bible without question. Uh, honestly, you didn't give me the impression that you're aware of the bird's eye view either. William Dever is the direct pinpoint view, and he goes through hundreds of archaeological sites, and the former views of how the biblical record coincides with so many of those archaeological sites, William Dever has demonstrated with the newest of scientific tools, we now have dozens of methods to check how good the integration is between archaeology and text. And every example you used has been shown less strong than you have presented it, Mr. Metaxas. You need to be aware of stuff like that, right? And you're not up to date. Again, I'm not trying to attack you, I so promise. Now, and again, the uh, 
And, and this this gentleman is somewhat controversial. Well, now, part of the argument, now, William Dever has been arguing against these guys in some respects, and then he has been arguing with them in other respects of biblical archaeology. So there's dozens of scholars in this field, and they are approaching it from dozens of different angles. Sometimes they will agree, and they will agree in print. Other times they get pretty rancorous with each other, and they disagree on some kind of a interpretation of an archaeological site and its significance and its influence. And, and they will publish. And you, you almost think like, wow, these guys will have a fist fight. They're all good friends, even though they disagree on so many things. They are in agreement also on so many things because the biblical archaeology field is morphing. It's evolving. It's changing. Some parts of it are expanding larger with new, fresh discoveries, other parts of the interpretations or the connections uh, between different ancient sites and how they tie in with the Bible are shrinking down to where, startlingly enough, some of the earlier biblical archaeology claims of connections in reality are simply the wishful thinking of the earlier archaeologist. You need to be aware of all that. If you're going to use biblical archaeology with credibility, it's a boatload of homework is what I'm trying to tell you. And I, I'm going to encourage you to keep doing more homework first, right? The other one is the Bible unearthed. And that's by... Uh, Israel Finkelstein and Neil Asher Silberman. Uh, you you really have to, and there are all kinds of various different nuanced arguments that I can't get into for this book review. Again, I'm just trying to do a, a general uh, overall generalized uh, view of your book, and it's a book I like, and I'm going to recommend it, but with these caveats that you strengthen it later on with the second edition, or the next time you write a book and you want to use the Bible as evidence, don't. If you're not going to come up to date, don't even broach the subject because it's going to come back and it's going to bite you hard right in your butt. I promise. Another gentleman who is really powerful, uh, one of the world's best scholars in this particular niche of Bible and archaeology. This doesn't mean he's always correct, but he's very, very good. Sincerely, is Mark D. Smith. The Origins of Biblical Monotheism, Israel's polytheistic background, and how it changed. This is absolutely a must-read for you, Mr. Metaxas. And you need to integrate this exquisite scholarship. Now, once again, it is older scholarship. That's true. I mean, it's 25, 30 years old. I, I agree. Uh, we, <laughs> we keep moving along. But the, the essential ground 
the the fundamental layer from which we then build upward into further knowledge this is it and his other second book is the early history of god you must use this book mr metaxas absolutely essential it, since you're bringing up biblical archaeology you've got to go with better scholars than whom you did in my opinion and then the two just to give you a flavor of the and it's a serious controversial issue it really is uh the entire patriarchal narrative is just story uh, whether you view that as fortunate or unfortunate, I suppose, uh, I mean, it might have something to do with which religion you belong to. I understand that. I, I, I'm with you on that. I get that. However, seriously, seriously, that does not excuse us from knowing the controversies, the evidence, the made up evidence, the false philology being used in order to verify the patriarchal period, the archaeology and the false interpretations of the archaeology that were used for 60 years in the American archaeology schools and how that has been now superseded into a more realistic approach, thus giving us the information that the patriarchal era is essentially mythology and the two most powerful books they are controversial i'm not dodging that but the two best books to show you this view you must read these john van cedars this is an exquisite text of scholarship whether you agree with them or not doesn't matter. Don't just read the book reviews. Read the book. Come to your own knowledge on this. You must address this controversy eventually. Abraham in History and Tradition. He says it didn't happen. There is very precious little history in Genesis. This is why you have to use the best. And then the other one, and this gentleman is seriously controversial, but his material is what began the end of the William F. Albright influence in biblical archaeology. And that's John, or, or uh, sorry, Thomas L. Thompson. The historicity of the patriarchal narratives. and. He just demonstrated that the entire archaeological school of William F. Albright was based on Christian wishful thinking. Now, a lot of this book is controversial. Some of it has been refuted, etc. To simply toss it off as anti-Christian is coward's way out. It's not anti-Christian. To say, oh, he's just being racist and anti-Jewish is just pure stupid. 
That's the cop-out. That's a cheap way out. Master the material and understand the arguments. Dever is this guy's nemesis. But not this book. This book is pretty substantial scholarship. It's his later materials that William Dever really does not like. And I honestly think William Dever beats the argument. Now, what is William Dever's overall approach? William Dever's overall approach is simply this. There was a biblical Israel. There is a group of scholars out of uh, Norway, Sweden, over there across the pond. I'm here in America, just in case you're not. Uh, over across the pond, and they are called the minimalists. And they say there never was an Israel. The entire Bible is nothing but myth, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Well, that doesn't work either. Archaeologically, William Dever has shown there was a real, an actual, legitimate Israel. But the way the Bible portrays its history is not what happened. You see the difference? The biblical narrative is written from a more or less a, oh, uh, a faith-promoting view in antiquity. Now, here's the kicker. Part of the issue that, and, and I think this is more or less uh, the background information that we have to have in mind as we are doing the biblical studies and trying to correlate them with the archaeology is the, the, uh, the narratives. And, and, and I mean, not only the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, but even the so-called, quote, the historical books, the first and second Kings, the first and second Chronicles, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, first and second Samuel, even those, hist those so-called historical books. Then you get to the, uh, uh, the poetry, you know, Job. Psalms, Proverbs, etc., the wisdom literature. So that's that's actually uh, an entire different genre that's been put into the Bible when it was compiled. But then you get to the uh, the prophets. Now, the vast majority of Old Testament prophets are those which lived and existed. Uh, just before and after the Assyrian destruction of Israel, uh, 700 BC, when Assyria came through. And then the uh, some of the other prophets were there for the Babylonian destruction of Nebuchadnezzar that happened uh, 100, 125, 130 years later in 600 BC. And that was where the, the the ten tribes were taken by the Assyrians, so they lost the the league, the confederation of the twelve tribes, uh, and then uh, Nebuchadnezzar came and absolutely wiped out the Temple of Solomon, 
and he took the Jews captive into Babylon. And then, of course, you have the, the weeping prophet Ezekiel. And, you know, he's the big mystical prophet of the Jewish scholars later on with the Merkava mysticism, the chariot mysticism, which, of course, evolved through time into the Kabbalah. So you have all of these various types of materials they were compiled and written only at 5 to 600 BC so the majority of the old testament way of telling israel's story is not eyewitness material. It is written from a later point of view reflecting the politics, the socioeconomic status of the Jews in relation with all of their other neighbors from the ideology of 500 B.C. in relation to the rise of Persia, etc. None of the stuff earlier is eyewitness description as it happened. In other words, true history. It's all written from a much later time. This type of background is essential if you're going to bring in biblical archaeology as evidence for deity or as evidence for your faith, etc., and that's what you did not do. So that is my, and I agree, it's probably a little bit critical, but it's really more critical for you not to take it personally and do something about this defect in your materials. I would suggest either upgrading to now the downside, and there is a downside, I promise, and you will be caught if you try to fudge this or cheat. There's because it's it's world renowned among the biblical archaeologists now. You're not going to be able to sneak in a little bit of faith promoting if you think you are, you're going to get zapped quick. And that is if you do choose to update up upgrade your knowledge so that today's particular point of view can be seen for your audience, it's not going to be supporting the Bible and history. So my first suggestion is probably your best bet. I would love it if you could prove me wrong, but my first suggestion is just quit bringing up this stupid subject of biblical archaeology because it does not confirm your history in the Bible. That is where you're reading way more into it than you ever are justified at this point in time, right? I honestly don't think any of us are going to live long enough to see a full justification of the biblical narrative now, the Old Testament narrative, as we have it in the documents. And your ideas of the Dead Sea Scrolls, iffy at best. I used to think the same way with you, man.
I used to think, oh man, this stuff, man, this stuff not only confirms the Bible, it confirms the Book of Mormon and Mormons. No, they simply do not. Not the way you intimated. The biblical manuscripts do not give evidence the way you're intimating at all. Uh, and I don't have time at this point to delve into your New Testament approach. I will say, as a general rule, you have the same problem with it as you do with the Old Testament. You're just not using up-to-date, actual, excellent knowledge from the world-class scholars. Uh, I think a couple of the gentlemen you used were just more or less Christian scholars who have been over there in Israel and done a dig. That doesn't make them an archaeologist. Now, and I might be misstating that. I hope I'm not, but I, I sincerely was just not impressed with either your use of Old Testament archaeology nor the New Testament archaeology. And you either have to upgrade and get serious and be credible or quit talking about it. From my point of view, that does not mean your book is not readable or desirable to read. I liked your book. I'm just saying. So now to get to the third point. Oh, good Friday night, isn't it? There's a few of us here. Thank you for showing up. I hope you're enjoying this review. I'm trying hard to be honest, legitimate, and help this gentleman out because I did like his book. And I'm, I recommend you get it and read it without question. Now, the third element <laughs> and this this is the one that will get him attacked. There's no question about it. This is the one that will turn uh, a lot of people off, but I think he has some very excellent points. I'm not going to dawdle on it like I have the biblical stuff because my expertise, <laughs> what little I have, is in the biblical history and archaeology. And that is what I really do like to focus on in a realistic manner. And I mean, that's what we all want is we want it to be realistic. Okay, well, then that means we've got a heap much boatload of work to do, right? A lot of research and studying in this. So, uh, and and then I'll I'll uh, I'll say hi to you guys. You look like you're having a blast. So, okay, the third section is where Metaxas takes on the incongruity and the contradictions and the problems of the new atheists' determination to completely obliterate religion and how they try to make religion be absolutely, positively, the total force, author, and source of all evil and stupidity. And I must say, hats off to Metaxas. He really gets some great digs in against Richard Dawkins. <laughs> and unfortunately, Fortunately, and I know you guys are going to just scream bloody murder at me, and I apologize. Perhaps I can do this on a Sunday live session. Not this Sunday, because I have some great stuff on Freemasonry. Perhaps I can, you know, maybe I maybe I could squeeze this into another special live session uh, here in a week or two. But uh, really, truly, uh, he has caught some of the new atheists in some absolute brutal contradictions. <laughs> and it's hilarious. 
It really is. And that doesn't mean he's refuted atheism. I'm not saying that. Because we all know by now, I mean, I, I'm I'm known to be saying that, uh, okay, if you refute Richard Dawkins, you haven't killed atheism. You haven't refuted atheism. Richard Dawkins is an atheist, right? Okay, so you show several points, and he does. Oh, my goodness. There's far more than I thought there would be, <laughs> which made it fun to have this book, right? That's why I say I recommend this book, because it does give you a new view of not only Dawkins, but of good old Hitch. You know, Hitchens was one of the funnest to listen to, but how honestly strong and consistent is and was his logic? Metaxas has some pretty good demonstrations that it's not as good as I thought it was at one time. So again, new analysis new concepts, new contextual approaches, and just applying the same rigor and level of logic that atheists insist on doing about religion, applying that same level right back at the atheist arguments, show the atheists might be spinning yarn far more than we have suspected. And it's worth looking into. And this is this is the note that I want to end on. This is a good book. I'll give it a 7 out of 10. Is Atheism Dead by Eric Metaxas? Because he makes me yearn to truly look further into the fine-tuning argument. And he makes me want to reread Dawkins and Harris and Hitchens and compare it with what he says to see the brutal contradictions, to see if he is reading them correctly or if he is misusing them. But the thing I like about a good book, what makes a book good is it helps you want to learn more. And Metaxas's book, for me, for this backyard professor, Metaxas did that. And that's why I say seven out of 10, that's not bad, truly. You can improve that Mr. Metaxas by taking my suggestions concerning the uh, the approach that you have with the biblical materials in conjunction with outside archaeological so-called helps or proofs or demonstrations giving the biblical actual and true historicity and authenticity, I don't think they do that. Not nearly as how you present it because I think you stopped too early. The new archaeology isn't even called biblical archaeology. Even that was wishful thinking. So uh, there's some work to that can help you improve your presentation. In the meantime, I will recommend your books. And I'm definitely going to read uh, Metaxas' former book. And um, oh. Let me see what his former book, Five Languages. Oh, criminy. 
is on the entire book is on the fine-tuning argument. And I do want to read that book. Based on what he said in this book, he piqued my interest finally in doing my own research. Instead of just reading it uh, from a Christian point of view and then another one from the atheist point of view and seeing these guys butt heads, bam, 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 bam. Yes, it's good. No, it's not. Yes, it's good. No, it's not. Yes, it is good. No, it is not. Instead of approaching it that way, I myself want to do some exploration in the various chemists and astronomers and cell biologists and physicists and what they are saying, not about the fine-tuning argument, but what they are saying about the astronomical information that have been discovered to be a fine-tuning argument. That's how I want to approach this. And I suspect it'll take me quite a few years, and it's okay, because that's what time is for, to use enjoying your life and improving the mind. Yes, that is what the Backyard Professor is all about. By golly, it is. So anyway, uh, I am just about approaching. Hey, Huff Daddy, I'm going to talk to you guys for just a few minutes uh, I want to see who all's here and say hi to all my good friends and neighbors and and uh, give you a drink of pure, wonderful water. Again, I'm sorry for the uh, unannounced live. I just, I finished this book and I said, holy crap, I've got to review this book. Good and bad parts to it, which is what is typical of all books, isn't it? So anyway, let's see who all is here. Name Flying Man Disciple. Welcome. Huff Daddy, how are you? Good to see you. Maven. Yeah, right, Maven. I know Backyard Professor always leaves the screen and Radio Free Mormon gets after him. <laughs> Welcome, Maven. Good to see you, sweetie. Uh, and Elisa, oh, Splonky Doink is here. Good to meet you. Good to see you again, my friend. And... Uh, Nano Flying Man Disciple. I, I don't know if I've seen you on my uh, live session before or not. If I haven't, well, oh, hey, Gnostic Informant. Welcome, man. Good to see you, buddy. We've got some more stuff to do together, don't we? Yeah, baby. True story. And uh, who else is here? Yeah, you got to get me back on Gnostic Informant. I hope everybody said hi to Gnostic Informant. He's got some spectacular videos out there on YouTube. I've been on it a couple times, and I probably dropped his rating 70%. <laughs> but, yeah, we got to do some more stuff, brother. Yeah, I'm, I'm all for it. Joe, welcome. Good to see you. Yeah, I got to contact you. I've been meaning to, I promise. I've just, I've been busy, you've been busy, but when we're too busy for our friends, we're too busy, right? Isn't that the theory? Hey, it's the theory I'm going with, man. You can't stop me. I don't care who you are. <laughs> Peter Higgs, I've said hi to you. Welcome. Dean Schwank, yeah, I've said hi to you too. So you guys look like you had a lot of fun. Uh, I'll, I'll go back through this and read the comments as I watch the video and see what you guys uh, came up with on how on how ignorant I truly am but now nah, this is it's fun to read books like this because it's the other side of the equation so to speak right and that's really quite frankly in my opinion uh, that's pretty important to do you got to get all views man you don't have to believe anything you read but you need to be familiar with all the views right 
I know that's so weird when you stop and think about it, but that I promise that's the way it is. There is no other way it's going to be. Oh, Erwin Mager. Yeah, I'm with you, Erwin. I, I, I'm basically agnostic seeker also. Thank you for showing up. Welcome. Uh, good to see you. I love you guys. You're, you're the best audience in the world. All of you are always welcome. Everybody's welcome to the Backyard Professor video lives and so on and so forth. Tell everybody about me and tell them to come on on Sunday nights. We have a good time, don't we? I think the chat is almost as exciting as or excited as the uh, Mormon stories and Mormonism live. Man, do we have a hoot with them. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Maven. Maven does a spectacular job with Bill and Bill Real and uh, Radio Free Mormon. I mean, those guys are just they are fun. They have great subjects. Someday I, when I grow up, I'll be just as good as they are. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Dream on. Yeah. Oh, hey, Marquita Armstrong. Welcome. Glad you showed up. I'm, I'm I, sorry it's on a Friday night. I know everybody should be out on dates, right? Yikes. <laughs> oh, well, we didn't. We skipped Friday night. That's the way it is. Oh, let's see. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. Cheering me on. You're awesome. Huff Daddy, you're awesome too. You guys, I, I'm going to enjoy reading this chat. Sometimes when I do these unannounced live sessions, the chat really gets interesting. It's kind of fun because it gets a... a I mean, it attracts a different audience. You know, there's some people who just cannot do Sunday night live. And I'm sorry for that. But uh, my intention, what, I mean, one of these times, I think it'd be a blast to do a backyard professor live one night, every night for an entire year on a different subject. Wouldn't that be wild? Not yet. I'm working too much still. Maybe when I retire. So, hey, Ryan Larson. Good to see you, my friend. Good to see you. As always, This was earlier, about an hour ago. I hope you were able to stick around, bud. If not, that's okay. You can watch the video. That's how this works. That's Jacob Williams. Welcome. Mark Crispin. Hey, you made it, bud. Welcome. Okay, I think I at least got to say hi to, or at least mention James Conger. Hello. Welcome. Glad you could show up. I appreciate that. Okay, so yeah, I think we're, I think I'm at the top now. Okay, anyway, so you guys are awesome. That's all there is to it. Uh, I, I basically gave that book review, the shirt tail book review. I've had uh, several people ask me to, start doing my shirt and tail reviews again. And those were a lot of fun when I did them earlier. I used to do them as a write-up for two or three pages, just kind of give highlights and my ideas on why I think a particular book is worth reading and so on and so forth. And and uh, I'm going to start doing that more uh, because it's just so much fun. Hey, Nikki McBee, welcome. Uh, and so that's... I'm going to start as I keep reading various books. And of course I read in all the wild, weird subjects, you know, complete waste of time, complete waste of time. <laughs> so it's fun to read all the different subjects. Uh, 
Okay. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it can. Logic can be warm and loving, Maven. Very good point. Yes, it can. I see you're having a conversation with Huff Daddy. Watch out. He's a sharp cookie. I'm just saying. <laughs> uh, okay, you guys. Thank you so much. It's an hour and 20 minutes. And uh, I'm going to call it a night. I've got other stuff I need to get done. I need to go prepare for my Sunday, this Sunday night at 6 o'clock for the uh, Backyard Professor Live, uh, a continuation of the Mormonism, Magic, and Freemasonry. And, oh, my gosh, there's some great stuff coming down the pipeline on that. I mean, that is a huge subject. Talk about hot dog Woohoo! No, I'm not going to eat another hot dog. I'll find something else fun to eat in front of you on camera. <laughs> I think a few of you got a kick out of that. I know I've only had ever one person really be offended that I did that. You know, you can't please everybody, so quit trying to. <laughs> and you know me by now. I don't give a flip. I'm 61. Be offended if you want, or come and love me and have some fun and enjoy some great conversations. That's how this works. So anyway, okay, I am going to take off. You guys have a great weekend. Oh, hey, Father's Day is Sunday. So we'll do a special Father's Day Freemasonry thing. So get your Father's Day fun and excitement and picnics and meals over with and then come on. Yeah, I'll say happy Father's Day to all you fathers. Be sure and remind me, would you? Because I'm such a doughhead, airhead. I'll probably, you know, whoosh, skip right over it, jump right into my subject. So, all right, you guys, have a great weekend the rest of the weekend, and I'll see you here in a couple of days. Thank you for showing up. It's been a boatload of fun, man. But I got to go. It's one of those situations. It is beyond my control, and it is not my fault. You hear me? Yeah, you hear me. Shut up and get off the stream, dude. All right, you guys. Hasta la vista, baby.